Matthew chapter 17. We continue our study through the record of Matthew, the evangelist, as he recounts the life of Jesus. And we pick up our study today in verse number 14. Read with me as I read out loud for us verses 14 through 27. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give an offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. These are the words of God to us. Let's pray as we begin to consider them this morning. Gracious Father, I confess that apart from your Spirit's work and power, this time is a futile exercise for all of us. It is futile for us to study your word if your spirit does not give us understanding. We have no ability in and of ourselves to grasp it. And we have no ability in and of ourselves, having not grasped it, to communicate it to one another. And so from this vantage point of preaching your word, And from that vantage point of receiving and hearing your word, we confess our dependence upon your spirit. We ask that the one who inspired these words, who breathed life into this book, the one who breathed life into our hearts and regenerated us, the one who has opened our eyes to see the glory of your son, the one who has given us ears to hear the good news of forgiveness and grace in Jesus. The one who has given us hearts, 
not of stone, but of flesh that are warm to the gospel. We desperately need that one to work now in a fresh way, bearing fruit for your glory through the work of your word. So we lay this time before you asking that you would take your word and run freely with it in all of our lives as we study it this morning. May this not be a ritual. May this be time with you through the means that you've ordained the proclamation of your word. So we commit this preaching time and this study time to you in the name of our Christ. Amen. I had the privilege this week of having lunch with our oldest member of Grace Church, who is sitting just to my left and to many of your right down here in the front. Mr. Fred Patton and I enjoyed Denny's as we do often. Uh, Every couple of months we get to Denny's, which has the most variety, Fred would have you know, of any restaurant in Kingsburg. We get to Denny's and we sit down and the delight of my heart is to spend time with you brothers and sisters as you bring what God is teaching and working in your lives to bear on my life. I had that privilege this week because there at that meal, I asked Fred what he was reading and studying. And if you don't know, Fred has been in pastoral ministry in the hospital chaplaincy for about 10 years as long as I have been in pastoral ministry within the local church. So it's meaningful to ask, what are you learning? Where is God working in your heart? What are you reading now? So he began to tell me which John Piper book he's currently working through. And he quoted a book he had recently read that that made reference to J.I. Packer, a great theologian from Great Britain. Packer was asked, what would you do differently if you could do all of ministry over again? He said, there's one thing I would do differently. I would teach, teach, and teach. Fred, of course, was encouraging me to make that my battle cry now. Teach, teach, teach. But in the moment of hearing it, and then in the moments following it, as I reflected on those words from Packer through Fred to my own heart, and with this text in front of me through this week, I understand that Dr. Packer's perspective on the great need of humanity and the great calling that was placed upon his life go hand in hand. His understanding was that man is fundamentally flawed and that truth must be transferred for man to receive any change in his current condition. And so the teaching, the teaching, the teaching of the Word of God, the truth of God, is the highest and most noble activity for the one set apart for that task. We desperately need truth to inform our minds so that we think God's thoughts after Him and we desperately need wisdom to let that truth be lived out in our daily lives. To be more specific, we need truth from heaven to set us apart as the children of heaven And we need wisdom from heaven to guide us as we live for heaven's glory on earth. So it's not enough that we gather together and we receive teaching. It's not enough that we sit in our private worship and receive teaching as we are indoctrinated by the word of God. Whatever vehicle he uses, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a an audio file. Maybe it's this time where the the teaching of 
truth is happening. If that is left alone, and if there is no wisdom applied to that truth, and if there is no change to the life of the one who has received it, we are to be pitied. The Apostle Paul would say that those who receive and accumulate knowledge without love, that is, the expression of that knowledge being lived out in their lives, are worthlessly chasing knowledge. He would call some who were within the church. He would claim that they were always getting knowledge, but never understanding. John 17, 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed that the Father would sanctify us, his children. Sanctify them with your truth. Thy word is truth, right? So this morning, it's our privilege. It's not our right. We don't have a right to this. It's our privilege. It's our privilege to have the word of God in front of us and to come again to a teaching time. It's a privilege, not a right. God is not obligated to provide this for us, for any of us. It's a privilege to come and to be with Jesus through the record of Matthew preserved for us this morning. We have the inspired word from Matthew recording the actions of Jesus, the incarnate word. I don't want to fly into Matthew 17, verse 14. Without pausing to consider where we are in the scope of Matthew and what it is that we're about to do as we study it. This is the beginning of the final section of discourse recorded by Matthew. In other words, Jesus' teaching ministry will wrap up at the end of chapter 18. Beginning in chapter 19, we will have the triumphal entry. Time will slow down. Details will become prolonged. And we will begin the final walk of our Lord to the cross. So chapter 17, verse 14, to the end of chapter 18, is the final record of the teaching ministry, included with miracles, of Jesus in Matthew's record. And Matthew wastes no words. He is crystal clear in his mission to establish Jesus as the King, the promised Messiah of heaven for the nation of Israel and extending to the Gentile peoples of every nation. And so in verse 14, coming off of the mountain, re-entering real life, if you will, Jesus and the three disciples enter into this experience. All of the gospel accounts, all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this event in verse 14 to verse 20, place this event right after the transfiguration. And so we are about to receive instruction. We are receiving instruction Through the vehicle of preaching. We are receiving instruction through the vehicle of the word of God being preached. I mean, that is the the, the means of God's truth coming to us. But we are also in the word of God receiving immediate instruction from the Lord himself. So we have a great privilege and a great opportunity to focus our attention on this this morning. We get to learn with the disciples from the King of Glory, in his final teaching ministry as recorded by Matthew. What is the grand theme of what we will study this morning? This section, um, heading all the way into chapter 18, really could be 
umbrellaed with this grand theme. The wisdom of heaven is gleaned or must be gleaned by observing the life of Jesus and by receiving the instruction of Jesus. So the wisdom of heaven for mankind. The wisdom of heaven is gleaned by observing, by seeing the life of Jesus as revealed to us in the word of God and by receiving the instruction of Jesus as recorded to us in the word of God. So we have the privilege of studying paragraph after paragraph and watching Jesus and listening to Jesus and through those two mechanisms, receiving wisdom from heaven for our lives. It doesn't get any better than this. This is the the privilege of the sons and daughters of the king to sit at the feet of the king himself and to receive instruction and to watch him live heaven's wisdom on display. Now, my original goal had been to preach this morning and cover all of the verses at the end of chapter 17. Today is an important lunch day. That means we probably ought to be somewhat aware culturally of the situation. And I submitted or surrendered finally to that, waving the red flag, or the white flag rather, not the red flag, whatever a red flag does, white flags mean surrender. Um, And we have only to study this morning verses 14 through 20. So we'll cover this first paragraph. It's the first of the opportunities to see Jesus live and to hear Jesus teach. And it is the first of these final opportunities to glean wisdom from heaven through the life and ministry of Jesus. Okay, here in Matthew's record, let's focus then on this first narrative and we'll call it faithless disciples and mighty Jesus, faithless disciples and mighty Jesus. If we were to divide up these three narratives that make up the end of chapter 17, we would also include in that list a foretelling of the cross and the empty tomb, which is verses 22 and 23. And the final narrative, Peter, Jesus, and that temple tax. Uh, Wrapping up verses 24 through 27, we'll cover those next Lord's Day if the Lord is willing for that to take place. Okay, so let's begin today in this final section recording these, these teaching moments with Jesus. And let's begin by examining faithless disciples and mighty Jesus. Verse 14, and when they came to the crowd, Matthew here skips a lot of details, isn't concerned as he normally is not concerned with filling in all of the gaps and answering all the questions. He simply has the three disciples and Jesus coming down the mountain and there's a crowd there and the other nine disciples. So they've been up on the mountain. Mark gives us more detail in Mark chapter nine, much more extensive account of this same story. But for Matthew's purposes, he gets us right to the crowd because he wants to get right to the action. We find him immediately getting to the action. Verse 14, waste no time. They came to the crowd, and when they got there, a man came up to him, that is Jesus, and kneeling before him, said. Right away, we're confronted with this picture. There is a crowd of people, maybe thousands of people. And through that crowd, worming his way, is someone pushing and shoving. And, excuse me, I'm sorry. And maybe tears streaming down his cheeks. And he runs and he runs until he can see him. And then he runs and he slides in on his knees and says, 
Lord. This is a desperate man. It's a desperate man who has met a mighty Messiah. That desperate man says this in verse 15. Lord, Master, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. And then he says these heavy words. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So that's what Matthew cares about. I mean, he's getting down the mountain to get us here. He doesn't tell us when the crowd came. He doesn't tell us how much time has gone by. He just says they got down the mountain. There's a crowd and boom, this man comes and he kneels and he says these things to Jesus. It's desperation. The scenario could not be more desperate on so many levels. This man in verse 16 says that the disciples could not heal his son. And this is the crux of the problem that Matthew is presenting for the instruction of Jesus into our lives, right? Into the lives of the church that received Matthew's gospel account and into our lives indirectly as the recipients of this preserved word. Matthew wants us to know that the disciples couldn't heal the boy. This man painfully makes Jesus aware. Now, what was the problem? That's what we're supposed to ask in this text. It's what the disciples themselves ask. What was the problem? Did they not have the power that they needed for such work? Was this demon uh, an especially persistent kind of demon? Were they some kind of junior miracle workers? I mean, they could do some miracles, but not others. I mean, if we really get real about miracles, a miracle is reversing the order of what has been set in motion by nature, by God's design. So doing one miracle but not another is is kind of a, a false argument. So what's the problem? If they could do some, why could they not accomplish this task? And the problem is supposed to draw back to mind what we remember from the kingdom missionaries being sent out into the mission field. Do you remember those disciples When he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the field. And immediately in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, guess what, fellas? You're the answer to prayer. You're going out two by two. Let's flip back there and see what Jesus tells them in chapter 10 and verse 1 that has everything to do with our text this morning. In verse 1 of chapter 10. Having commended them to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus called to him his twelve disciples. And gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Notice verse eight. Jesus says, heal the sick. Raise the dead. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. You receive without paying. Give without pay. This is not a, this is not a, a circus sideshow. This is the kingdom missionaries taking the kingdom message to the people of Israel. And in this delegation of those twelve, two by two, in the first 
of the missionaries that would be sent into the harvest by the Lord of the harvest, of which we are direct descendants as God's people, to those first 12 were given a delegated authority to handle demons. And every disease, even leprosy, to raise dead people, all of this is a part of what the nine have. Three are up on the mountain. Nine are down in the valley. And those nine that are living down in the valley are faced with this dilemma and the humiliation of not being able to heal this young man. Matthew doesn't give us anything other than these details for the story. It's curious to know that this is translated epileptic. Um, You understand that. That's a very modern word. That's a very modern condition. Maybe some of you are suffering as epileptics with the right situation and without a medication that can help your brain. You will seize up. This epilepsy was demon oppression. This demon was casting. Mark uses an active an active verb system, this demon was casting this little boy into fires. He was throwing him into water that would drown him. This little boy was oppressed with every, every ailment this demon could muster and give. And Jesus responds to this desperate man's plea and the discouraging report about the nine disciples. And he says in verse 17, O faithless and perverted generation, twisted, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. That's Matthean understatement right there. That's Matthew just getting the facts out because he has He has a goal in mind for us. He wants us to receive the instruction of Jesus. We receive the wisdom of heaven through through watching the life of Jesus as he puts on display the wisdom of heaven. And we receive the wisdom of heaven by hearing and receiving and applying the instruction of Jesus. And that's Matthew's goal. So Jesus answers this man with disappointment in his disciples. And sinless frustration at the situation. And these words are exactly what he said. He said, how long do I have to be with you? How long do I have to put up with you? What would drive Jesus to such a response? Well, it was the indictment that he began with. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Jesus here gives a twofold diagnosis that is the moral condition for the disciples. What is it that the disciples have as their greatest barrier to releasing the power that's been delegated to them by Jesus? Chapter 10, they were given that power to cast out demons and to do every form of miracle. What is it that keeps them? Is it an intellectual problem? Is it an information deficit? Is it an education issue? Is it a psychological dilemma? Is it something in their past that they should look back and say, oh, that's what it is? Is it residual effects from, I don't know, from something that happened in elementary school? 
No. It's a moral problem. They lack faith. And they are therefore twisted. That's another modern word and even a colloquial word that we use to talk about people who are particularly perverse. No doubt you are you use this or you've heard others use this in the vernacular of our society now. Reading a story in the newspaper, hearing something on the news about some perversion. And saying that is so twisted. Why? Why do we use that phrase? Because we're assuming that to be not twisted is to be straight and and clean and and smooth as it should be. Jesus used the same concept of crooked, twisted. And this generation of people represented in these nine disciples is marked by these moral flaws. These disciples are a part of a worldly and perverted humanity which lives and moves in the presence of the Messiah of heaven. Say, what's the generation talk? That is the group of people that saw him in his incarnation. Those who were in the very presence of Jesus represent a generation of people. It's the same use, the same word that he used when he said, some of you here will see and will experience the kingdom coming before you die. It's that generation, some of this generation of people, this grouping of people. Jesus stamps that entire generation as being faithless and therefore twisted. Those two being connected. The disciples believe what they can see. And when you only operate on what you can see and what you can touch and what you can feel, you will live a twisted path. You will walk along a twisted road of powerless confusion as a believer. Now we know because of the whole of our scriptures that only eight of these men are true followers of Christ. One being Judas is a betrayer. He's a false follower from the earliest moment. And yet these men have been granted the authority to do this work and their faithlessness and their twisting is what has hindered the work of the kingdom taking place and being put on display for this man and his son. You follow? Jesus goes on to say, how long will I be with you and how long do I have to bear with you? These words of Jesus cannot be read through our own experience, right? I, I have a hard time reading him giving rhetorical questions like that without reading them, infusing my sinful tendencies into those words. Almost with disgust. How long do I have to be with you? How long do I got to put up with this? He has no sin involved in this. This is the glorious Lord of heaven in his humility. But he is one who operates with an eternal perspective, understanding that he's here because of the Father's plan and mission. And he's here only temporarily to accomplish what the Father has given him. And in this moment of disappointment, looking at these nine and looking in the face of this man on his knees, Jesus says, how long am I going to do this? How long am I going to bear with this? He'll go on to tell us in the next verses that it will only be until he gets to Jerusalem. Then he'll be killed. Then he'll be raised. Then he will ascend. 
and he will no longer be with his people. So Jesus makes clear the submission of his heart to the mission of his father. He's come with a view and end. And this faithlessness on the part of of these nine disciples draws him to say, how long will this go on? How long, Father, does this plan carry out? He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop in disgust. He doesn't stop in disdain for these nine who have faithless and twisted generation marks all over them. He heals the boy. He says, bring the boy to me. Matthew records, Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Literally from that hour on, the boy was healed. He was no longer oppressed with seizures and with bodily control, throwing him into fires and into water. The demon is dealt with. The boy is healed. End of story for the desperate man and the oppressed son. Because Matthew wants us to get teaching. He wants us to hear the instruction. And I believe that that whole narrative is launching us into verse number 19 and launching us into verse number 20, where we find these words. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, and and the emphatic here in, in the way this was originally written is, why could we, why could we not do it? There's an emphatic emphasis placed upon the we. Why could we not cast it out? I could feel the urgency of the disciples. And here we hear the words of Jesus and we receive wisdom from heaven as he instructs us. Oh, we see the wisdom of heaven and his mercy and it is compassion for the, the desperateness of the situation. The freeness with which he offers his compassion and mercy. The power of heaven seen in him. But we hear him teach us in verses 19 and 20 as he teaches his disciples. Why could we not get that demon out? And here is the instruction from Jesus. The answer Because of your little faith. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a this is a a daunting section. These are daunting verses and these are hard words. The problem is not about the size of the faith. I I think it's a poor translation to say little faith, weak, anemic. Underdeveloped is a much better understanding of this word. Because Jesus is about to give a tiny reference for faith. This is not about quantity of faith. This is about the quality of the faith. And the reason that the disciples could not cast out the demon. The reason they could not do what had been delegated to them to do. The reason they could not operate on what heaven had granted to them was because their faith was, it, it was insufficient for the task. Their confidence in what they couldn't see was not such that it could release the power that was theirs because of the delegation of Christ. It was your little faith. For truly I say to you, some of you may have an old King James familiar words here, verily, verily. Verily, verily, I say to you, truly I say to you, 
If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, which Jesus would use in another context, you remember, as being the smallness of the beginning of the kingdom that would blossom into an enormous, an enormous work of God in bringing every tribe and tongue and nation. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So here is the explanation that Jesus gives. Quantity is not the issue. The mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds in that part of the country at this time. It is the quantity, it's not the quantity that Jesus is dealing with, but rather the quality of the faith of the disciples. And he, and he gives shocking picture to help them understand that strong faith placed in the proper object, though it be small in size, will be undeniable in its power. I don't know what it is about these verses, but I, I was laying in bed this morning, early this morning, and I was thinking about these words, and I was thinking about how long I have I've struggled with this verse. This is just one of those sections that's always been very difficult. Why? Well, because Jesus says that if you have faith as you should, though it be small, you can say to a mountain, move, and the mountain moves. And I don't know if it was flannel graph theology that came through Years of being in church from the earliest possibility in my own life. But I've just always wondered who that person was and when I would get to meet them who's moved a mountain. Where are they? I'd like to meet that person. Because they've only got a little tiny bit of faith, but since it's placed in the proper object, they move mountains. It really wasn't until very recently that I began to see the overall picture of our scriptures using the mountain moving metaphor to reflect the impossible. I don't know why I I missed that. Maybe I had that well-intended Sunday school teacher who put the mountain on the flannel graph and then said, now what happens if we believe? We tell that mountain to move and we all would say, move mountain, and they would pick the flannel graph off and move the mountain. I don't know. But somehow it got in that this was not a metaphor used for the impossible. Even though that's exactly what Jesus says to cap this off. That's exactly what our whole Bible gives us. In Isaiah, this is referred to often as part of the messianic coming. Mountains will be leveled. They'll be moved. Valleys will be raised. This is a picture of the whole scope of what is existent being altered by the power of the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 21, just a few pages over, and verse 21, we find this same exact picture being used. He made the fig tree die. You remember that? We're coming to this story. This is an interesting story. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Same, same concept, um, same, same idea. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You remember this? He talks about love and faith. 1 Corinthians 13 is our, our love 
paragraph dealing with the definition of love within the church for one another. If you haven't been there in a while, I highly commend it to you. Meaningful stuff from the Apostle Paul. In verse number two, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge and I have all faith, what kind of faith? So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Jesus would use the same picture in Luke, only with a tree. And he would say you could pick this tree up and move it if you if you believed. The, the metaphor that's being used here, and it is a metaphor, is for the impossible to be done. And it's 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 it's. It's laughable to me that I think of moving mountains as being impossible, but healing dead people and making them alive. Oh, well, of course. I mean, of course. I mean, that, that's that's normal, right? That's always happening. Um, healing people who are born with diseases. Right. Well, of course, but that's normal. No, that's familiar. And Jesus is using something that is unfamiliar to their experience to say, if you have faith placed in the proper object. And it is quality faith that is untainted by the world system around you, untainted by your flesh. That faith has has potential to do the impossible. Now, this kind of text has been abused more than it has been rightly used. Probably today, if you took the time, and I trust you won't, you can do a lot of things that would be better than this, but you could go on a certain or several Christian television stations, and you could wait long enough and watch long enough, you would find someone talking about faith, meaning you get something and that the impossible can be done. So just believe it. And oh, while you're believing, send me a thousand bucks, right? Okay, that, that's, that's constantly abused from these texts. So the impossible being done is controlled by the context in which we find it. And the context in which we find it in Matthew chapter 17 is the carrying out of the disciples of the kingdom delegated power that is theirs. Jesus says there, there is no demon that's too tough. You've misunderstood. You had a faith problem. You had a heart problem. And because you have a heart problem, you were unable to use a limitless supply that's been delegated to you of power. There's nothing impossible for you. Mountains can move with faith placed in the proper object. That being the word of Jesus Christ. This is the same context control that we find in Philippians chapter 4. I remember watching football this season and seeing Tim Tebow and many other athletes putting 413 under their eyes. That's for Philippians 413. And in Philippians 413, which has become so overused, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do anything, right? And so Tim Tebow puts that under his eyes because I can win this game and I can throw touchdown passes. I can do anything. No, no, no. The context actually controls the statement. And Paul just got done saying that I can have wealth or I can be in desperate poverty. I can have riches or I can be in desperate need. I can go either way because I've learned to be content. I can do all things. Through Christ. What does that mean? I can live in any circumstance. Whether it be in prosperous times or whether it be in desperate times, Christ becomes the central pillar in which I relate to everything else. That's the context. So maybe that's exactly what Tim was thinking when he was out there. 
I don't know. But that is the same context control that we find here in verse number 20. Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you, nine, because you've been given this. And if you'll place your faith in the proper object, which is me as the delegator of that power, you can do the impossible. Even this demon that was so stubborn in withholding their rebuke. Now, Mark adds to this story in Mark chapter nine and recounts that Jesus says this kind takes prayer. I think that's complimentary because I believe in Matthew chapter nine, we just get more of the story. Jesus says it's a faith problem and your faith problem is directly connected to the fact that you don't even pray in regards to the exercise of the power I've delegated. You know, why would they not be praying? Because the disciples viewed this delegated power as some magical ability that they could use on a whim in and of themselves. Faith had been removed. Human energy was now behind their working of the kingdom mission, which relegated them to uselessness for Christ. Now, you might be noticing, and I just need to take a brief moment to reference this, that there's a verse 20, and then you're looking at verse 22. I don't, I'm not a math guy. I'm not a whiz in numbers by any stretch. I married one, but I'm not one. But I can tell when there's a number missing. Where's verse 21? Verse 21 was an addition to Matthew chapter 17. This is well documented. There would be no reason in the 5,000 copies that we have of the, of the New Testament. There would have been no reason for verse number 21 to be deleted if it were original. So verse 21 quotes Mark 9, this kind of demon. You'll see this in the bottom of your page. Probably it says, um, if you have an ESV, you'll say some manuscripts insert verse 21, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. That was added to synthesize the Gospels. A copyist is copying down Matthew. You have to envision this. He's copying Matthew by hand. He gets to this section and he sees on his copy that he's copying. He looks over and sees... It doesn't say anything about prayer. I know that Jesus said this is about prayer and fasting. The guy who copied this one must have left it out. He adds it in. Why? Because Mark 9 does include the original statement from Jesus. And he now synthesizes Matthew and Mark. That kind of harmonization of the Gospels is a secondary work. It is not a part of of how the scriptures were originally given. And the goal of the copyist and all who have come from them is to keep original what is original, which is why your ESV, your New American Standard, all of your translations no doubt have some kind of marking that eliminates or helps you understand what's going on with verse number 21. Okay? All that set aside, Jesus' point here and Matthew's point for us is to see that faith Results directly in the effectual working of power. This is the wisdom of heaven given to us through the reception of Jesus' teaching. Now we have one final task for the last two or three minutes that we study. We have one final task this morning. What is it that we do with this text? Where does this text intersect with our lives, your life? How does Matthew 17 verses 14 through 20 hit into your life 
and affect you? This is the question we always have to ask. And when we get to this text and we say, I've not been delegated with power to cast out demons, heal every disease, raise dead people. At least I don't think I have. That would change my funeral appearances dramatically. I've not been given that. And, and therefore, I'm not being promised that anything, uh, anything is possible with that kind of power if I just have faith. So what do I do with this text? I mean, I'm left to just wonder, is this applicable? And the answer is yes, this is absolutely applicable because from this text and from so many of our passages in our Bible, we find timeless principles that bring us right back to where we live. So let me give you some of those this morning. Four of them that come directly from this paragraph. Jesus is the only rightful object of your faith. Jesus is the only rightful object of your faith. If your faith, if your belief in what you can't see is placed in something else, You have a misplaced faith, which will result in a twisted life. And ultimately, if it is not corrected by God's grace, it will send you to an eternity apart from Christ. So Jesus is the rightful object of our faith. Number two, your faith, your belief in what truths are unseen is directly connected to your effectiveness in the work of God. So your confidence in what you can't see has everything to do with your effectiveness in what you can see. How often have we found ourselves ineffective for Christ? Is it anemic faith? Is it because our confidence is resting in those moments in something other than the power of Christ granted to us through Christ and in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Your faith is directly connected to your effectiveness in the work of God. Number three, the object of your faith is the basis of your faith's quality. So it is not a quantity issue. It's not mustering up more faith or somehow getting more faith in. It's purifying the faith in the object, seeing most clearly what is unseen. And the the clearer the object is perceived, the more effective that faith becomes in the life of the one who has it. Quantity is irrelevant when all belief is centered on Christ. He is infinite in his power. He is infinite in his value. He is infinite in his trustworthiness. Therefore, the smallest mustard seed of faith placed in him can accomplish great things for his glory. And finally, faith is directly connected to the word of God. Do you believe his word is true or not? Did the disciples in the moment of facing this man who is desperate for his son, did they believe it when Jesus said, I'm giving to you all the power that you need to cast out demons and to deal with unclean spirits? Did they believe him or not? No. Or kind of. But not with strength. Not with depth. Oh, they thought they could cast him out. That's why they tried. But their faith was misplaced. Therefore, they were doubting in some fashion the word of God, that is the word of Christ to them. So Jesus talks to this man and the nine. Well, now the twelve are there. Probably Peter, James or uh, yeah, Peter, James and John are standing in the back like we're not with them. Those nine are out there. This man is here and he says, oh, you have little faith. If you had faith, it could have happened in Mark chapter nine, verse twenty four. 
we find that man responding. And maybe your heart responds with that man. I believe. But help my unbelief. I do believe. But I don't. I, I do believe that this is true. What I can't see. What we're going to remember in just a moment. It, I believe it. But I, but I don't believe it. I'm not operating on that belief. My faith is not strong. It is not clearly placed in the object where it should be resting. With that, with that response echoing in my own heart, I wrote down these thoughts for application. Do I believe that others will be saved through my speaking the gospel to them? Do I? Do I believe that the mechanism by which God saves sinners is the word of my mouth sharing the message of Jesus? Well, what does my evangelism habit say about that? Number two, do I believe that the word of God will transform sinners from the heart out to the life? Inside out. Do I believe that? Because that's what he said. That's what he told me. Well, what does my devotional life and what does my discipleship life say about what I believe? Do I believe that prayer is the means by which God accomplishes His sovereign, unrevealed will? Do I believe that what is prayed in His will and in the character of Christ in His name will be answered and will be the means by which God accomplishes what He will accomplish? Do I believe this as He has said? What does my prayer life say about my faith in what I can't see? Do I believe that all activities of my life represent potential glory and worship for God? Do I believe that everything in me is an opportunity for worship? I believe, help my unbelief, because my work ethic, my school ethic, my entertainment ethic, say something about my belief or my unbelief. Do I believe... That every day on earth is a day for the mission of the kingdom. What does my life on a daily basis say about that? What does your life say about that? What does your life as a retired person say? About you claiming to believe that life is all about the kingdom. What is your life in work and your attitude and the way you view your labors? And the provision that God has supplied through work. What does it say about your belief in what you can't see? Which is the kingdom of heaven operating over your life. How about your parenting? Ay, ay, ay. We're getting a little close for comfort. How about your parenting? Does your parenting reflect your confidence that it's all about the kingdom and the king has all the wisdom and my responsibility is to live out what he's given to me through his word and I believe it and I'm, I'm acting upon that belief? What about school, students? What about your studies? What about your athletics? If the kingdom of heaven is the overarching place of authority in our lives it, it it has to come comes to bear on our our living and then do i believe my life today has eternal consequences what does my materialism say 
about that belief. It's my garage full of toys. My pursuit of money to get stuff. My discontentment with what God has given me. My ingratitude for what are his blessings for his kingdom purposes. What does it say? The wisdom of heaven is gleaned by observing the life of Jesus and by applying the instruction of Jesus. Jesus here says faith in the proper object releases all of the promises given to the people of God. In this context, it's 12 guys who were given power to overcome any demon and any sickness and any death. In our context, it's the power of the Spirit given to us to release us as those who carry the keys of the kingdom, who take the good news of Jesus Christ and who live out the gospel. I just, you don't know me. I just have a hard time living out the gospel. I know you're king. Do you believe? Father, we do believe. But we, we request help for our unbelief. We need growth. We need life changing growth. And we confess that it only comes through the finished work of Jesus. It's his life. It's his death. It's his resurrection that we lean upon. And we're going to remember now. It is, it's this truth. It's this powerful reality that is reflected in what we know about the gospel. That will be the theme of our eternal song. And it must be the theme of our life now before you. Teach us to walk by faith and experience the fullness of your blessing. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus, knowing this is what you desire for us. We ask that you would do it through him and for him so that he might be exalted in our lives and the life of our church. We ask it in Jesus' name.